my thesis, my topic is from Valley Forge to Appomattox, George Washington and the formation of the American nation. The holiday which we celebrated last Monday and which is the occasion for this lecture is Washington's birthday on the federal calendar. In the late 1870s, Senator Stephen Wallace Dorsey, a Republican elected to represent Arkansas during Reconstruction, sponsored legislation to establish Washington's birthday as a federal holiday. In the 1960s, another Republican, Senator Robert McClory of Illinois, sponsored legislation to move the holiday to the third Monday in November and change the name to President's Day so that the holiday would honor Lincoln as well as Washington. Lawmakers from Virginia objected, and so the name change was dropped, but the date was changed um, to the third Monday in, Monday in February, which always falls between Lincoln's birthday, February 12, and Washington's birthday, February 22. And so the holiday that we celebrate, that is the occasion for this lecture, is Washington's birthday but it's celebrated at a time that should cause us to think of Lincoln as well. And my lecture is a little bit like that. I set out to study Washington with a view towards speaking about him, and that is primarily what I will do. The heart of my lecture is about George Washington, what he experienced as commander-in-chief of the Army, the American Army during the Revolutionary War, the convictions that he formed as a result of those experiences, and how those experiences helped form the United States as a nation. When I started, I did not intend to speak about the Civil War or Abraham Lincoln or Robert E. Lee. But in the end, I found that Washington's story does not conclude with his death. His story is a chapter in the story of the formation of the American nation, and it unfolds into the Civil War and the story of its great protagonists which were Abraham Lincoln and Robert E. Lee. And with that introduction, let's turn to the Revolutionary War. Colonial resistance to British taxation and steps by the British to suppress that resistance led the 13 colonies to send representatives to a Continental Congress in 1774, and after fighting had begun in Massachusetts to a second Continental Congress in 1775. The Second Continental Congress operated as a central authority of a confederation first of colonies and then of states, an arrangement that was formalized with the adoption of the Articles of Confederation in 1781. The Second Continental Congress, by unanimous vote, appointed Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Forces. At the time, no Continental Army as such existed. Washington was sent to Massachusetts to take command of the forces there, which consisted of militia from the New England colonies opposed by a British Army in Boston. Washington was told that he had 24,000 troops. A census revealed that he had 12,000, of whom 3,000 were unfit for battle. He was told that he had 308 barrels of gunpowder. He learned that he had only 38 barrels, enough for nine rounds per soldier. If the British had attacked, the Americans would have been destroyed and the revolution likely crushed at the outset. My situation, Washington wrote a few months after taking command, has been such that I have been obliged to use art to conceal it from my own officers. 
that his army consisted solely of militia presented several problems in fighting a war against professional soldiers such as those comprised the British Army. The militia were untrained civilians, mostly farmers, who enlisted for a year or less and who elected their own officers. Washington soon learned that they were no match for Britain's professional soldiers in conventional warfare. A year after his appointment at command, as Commander-in-Chief, Washington reported that depending on militia was like, quote, resting on broken staff, end quote, because, quote, men dragged from the tender scenes of domestic life, end quote, who were untrained and unaccustomed to battle, were ready to flee from their own shadows. That they elected their own officers meant, according to Washington, that men who were not fit to be shoe blacks were often elected as officers. Perhaps the greatest impediment to fielding a credible army was the short terms of enlistment. Washington found that by the time he managed to train militiamen and to develop in them the necessary military discipline, their terms would expire and they would return home, leaving him to start over with new recruits. At one point, Washington wrote, we need to make every exertion on our part to check the enemy's progress, but we cannot if our reliance is solely or principally on militia, for a force continually fluctuating is incapable of any material effort. On another occasion, he wrote, I solemnly declare I never was witness to a single instance that can countenance an opinion of militia or raw troops being fit for the real business of fighting. I have found them useful as light parties to skirmish the woods, but incapable of making or sustaining a serious attack. This firmness is only acquired by the habit of discipline. Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware on Christmas Day, 1776, to surprise a troop of Hessian missionaries, mercenaries, was motivated in part. <laughs> you know, when I retired, what I said I want to do is when I give speeches, I wanted to be able to talk about the Lord. <laughs> I really did. And my first talk was on Thomas More. And then I got invited to President's Day. I did not intend to sleep in missionaries, but uh, you know where I'm coming from. Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware on Christmas Day, 1776, to surprise a troop of Hessian mercenaries was motivated in part by the fact that the term of enlistment for a great part of his army was due to expire at the end of the year. He had to attack before year's end while he still had an army. Partly due to the manpower shortage, a good number of black Americans served in Washington's army. Before Washington took command, blacks had already fought alongside whites at Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill, and they had done so with valor. Washington, a southern slaveholder, first ordered that blacks could not be enlisted in the Continental Army. Then the British began offering freedom to slaves who would enlist. By December, the circumstances forced Washington to acquiesce in the enlistment of blacks in the Army. Congress eventually authorized three-year enlistments, as Washington had requested. Still, money was lacking. In the winter of 1777 to 78, the legendary winter at Valley Forge, the army was undersupplied with almost everything. A French volunteer remembered a dinner party to which no one was invited 
who possessed a whole pair of trousers. Food was so short that in December, Washington ordered troops to be ready to attack, only to be told that they were unable to stir because of hunger. To see men without clothes to cover their nakedness, Washington later wrote, without blankets to lie on, without shoes, by which their marches might be traced by the blood from their feet, and almost as often without provisions as with, marching through frost and snow, and at Christmas taking up their winter quarters within a day's march of the enemy, without a house or a hut to cover them till they could be built and submitting to it without a murmur, is a mark of patience and obedience, which in my opinion, said Washington, can scarce be paralleled. During the Valley Forge winter, an officer from Rhode Island sent Washington a note asking for permission to recruit black soldiers from his home state. Washington approved and sent a letter to the governor of Rhode Island requesting assistance in this project to raise troops. The Rhode Island General Assembly enacted a law giving permission for slaves to enlist and granting their freedom upon enlistment. Then some 250 men enlisted in the 1st Rhode Island Regiment. According to Ron Chernow, approximately 5,000 blacks served in the Continental Army, comprising between 6 and 12% of the Continental Army at any given time, making it the most integrated American fighting force before the Vietnam War. Although not as legendary as the Valley Forge winter, the winter of 1779-1780 at Morristown, New Jersey also was grim. Washington complained bitterly to Congress of the lack of food. As late as April 12, Washington wrote that his army had not one ounce of meat. By then, Congress had given up trying to feed the troops and had asked the states to supply their own regiments. All proved lax, James Flexner says, and when the local governments did in fact move, there developed an emotionally difficult situation. One regiment was eating while its neighbor was not. Valley Forge and Morristown were surrounded by farms, so the problem was not lack of food. Food was available to purchase. The problem was lack of money, or lack of money with any real value. Congress had printed paper money backed by nothing. The Confederation money they printed depreciated in value to such an extent that most would not take it. By 1781, $167 of con congressional money was worth only $1 in gold and silver. The British Army had solid currency and could pay the local farmer more than could the Revolutionary Army. So lo local farmers often sold food to the British rather than to the Americans. In October of 1780, Washington wrote, we're without money and have been for such a great length of time without provision and forage except for what is taken by impress, without clothing, and shortly shall be in a manner without men. Earlier that same year, Washington had warned, there is such a combination of circumstances to exhaust the patience of soldiery that we see in every line of the army the most serious features of mutiny and sedition. Mutinies such as Washington feared did occur. On New Year's Day, 1781, 1,300 soldiers from the Pennsylvania line, exasperated over lack of food, clothing, and pay, 
killed several officers and headed toward Philadelphia to force Congress to provide relief. After that mutiny was quelled, some 200 troops from the New Jersey line marched on the state capital at Trenton and had to be stopped by a larger force from West Point. Washington reported these mutinies to the New England states, adding, the aggravated calamities and distresses that have resulted from the total want of pay for nearly 12 months, for want of clothing at a severe season, and not unfrequently the want of provision are beyond description. The Pennsylvania and New Jersey, New Jersey mutinies involved primarily enlisted men with relatively small numbers. A more serious danger, a near mutiny by Washington's own officers, was presented in 1783. To set the stage for that, I have to back up just a little bit. When the British general Cornwallis surrendered with 7,000 men at Yorktown in October of 1781, the war was effectively ended in favor of the Americans. The army, the American army, remained in the field, however, for two more years, waiting for word from Paris of a final peace treaty and keeping watch on the British troops that were still in the United States, or still in America. The Americans had won the war, but the morale was low. Congress had promised that they would be paid for their service, but had not kept that promise. Officers had not been paid for some years. In December of 1778, Washington notified Congress that, quote, a great part of the officers of your army from absolute necessity are quitting the service, and the more virtuous few, rather than do this, are sinking by sure degrees into beggary and want. Nearly two years later, Washington complained that hundreds of officers had resigned because they could no longer support themselves as officers, while many who remained were unfit for duty for want of clothing, while the rest are wasting their property and some are verging fast to the gulf of poverty and distress. With the war effectively over, for financial reasons, the army needed to be reduced in size as Washington agreed in a letter to the Secretary of War. Yet I cannot help fearing the result, Washington wrote, under present circumstances. When I see such a number of men about to be turned into the world, soured by penury and what they call the ingratitude of the public, involved in debts, without one farthing of money to carry them home. I cannot avoid apprehending that a train of evils will follow of a very serious and distressing nature. The train of evils that Washington feared nearly came to pass. In the spring of 1783, while Washington's army was camped at Newburgh, New York, an anonymous leaflet was circulated among the officers announcing a meeting at which the officers were to air their grievances. Another anonymous leaflet followed, listing their many grievances, warning that if they laid down their arms without having those grievances resolved, they would grow old in poverty and would be the only persons who had suffered as a result of the revolution. The leaflet cautioned the officers to suspect the man who would advise moderation. The leaflet proposed that if the war should resume, the soldiers should retire to some unsettled country. But if peace were obtained, Nothing shall separate you from your arms but death. In short, the leaflets proposed that the officers should use their arms to obtain the money owed them by the United States. 
the man of moderation against whom the leaflet warned clearly was Washington. Washington entered an order forbidding the meeting, which had been called without his permission, but also calling a meeting of the officers four days later. His order implied that he would not attend the meeting, but just at the last moment he entered through a side door and began to speak. Referring to the anonymous leaflets, he first noted that the strategy of the secret mover of this scheme was to incite the officers based on their passions, kindled by their grievances, without time for cool, deliberative thinking. After thus calling them from the heat of passion to cool, deliberative thinking, he reminded them of his own trustworthiness, noting that he had suffered with them throughout the war, never taking leave. He told them that the proposal that they should leave the country undefended if the war resumed or turn their arms against Congress if peace ensued was so shocking that humanity revolts at the idea. He called upon them to trust that Congress would act justly toward them, and he appealed in the name of our common country for your own sacred honor to respect the rights of humanity and to express your utmost horror and detestation of the man who wickedly attempts to open the floodgates of civil discord and deluge our rising empire in blood. By, this, by rejecting this invitation to turn their arms against their own country, he said, you will give one more distinguished proof of unexampled, unexampled patriotism and patient virtue rising superior to the pressure of the most complicated sufferings. Near the end of the speech, Washington attempted to read a letter from a congressman, but he faltered. Taking a pair of eyeglasses from his pocket, which he had, the, he had recently obtained the eyeglasses and most of the officers had never seen him wear them, he said, gentlemen, you must pardon me. I've grown gray in your service and now find myself growing blind. It's been said that at, mo at that moment, with this gentle but tangible reminder of what Washington himself had suffered for the revolution, that the officers wept. And in any event, the mutinies dissolved. A threat that Washington's officers would turn their arms against the infant nation was averted. averted. Jefferson commented later, the moderation and virtue of a single character probably prevented this revolution from being closed, as most others have been, by subversion of that liberty it was intended to establish. I will note here that a few, minute, few, moments, few months later, an officer had written a letter to Washington complaining that his men had not been paid, criticizing the Republican form of government, and suggesting that Washington should become king, though perhaps with a more innocent sounding title. Washington responded, no occurrence in the course of this war has given me more painful sensations than your information of there being such ideas existing in the army as you have expressed, which I view with abhorrence, abhorrence and reprehend with severity. The idea proposed, Washington said, would be one of the greatest mischiefs that can befall my country. He concluded, let me conjure you then, if you have any regard for your country, concern for yourself or posterity, or respect from me, to banish these thoughts from your mind and never communicate a sentiment of a like nature. Before moving on, 
let's pause to consider what an immense accomplishment it was for Washington and his army under the circumstances to withstand for several years the army of Great Britain, which at, time was, at the time was the world's preeminent superpower. In 1781, after French troops arrived, a French officer wrote, I admire the American troops tremendously. It is incredible that soldiers composed of men of every age, even of children of 15, of whites and blacks, almost naked, unpaid, and rather poorly fed, can march so well and withstand fire so steadily. He gave credit to the calm and measured, calm and calculated measures of General Washington in whom I daily discover new and eminent qualities. Another French officer was stunned, quote, by the destitution. The men were without uniforms and covered with rags. Most of them were barefoot. They were of all sizes down to children who could not have been over 14. There were many Negroes, mulattoes, etc. Only their artillerymen were wearing uniforms. Days before the anonymous leaflet circulated at Newburgh, Washington wrote that if future historians were to describe what his army had endured and had accomplished, posterity would deem it fiction. Here's Washington's words. For it will not be believed that such a force as Great Britain has employed for eight years in this country could be baffled in their plan of subjugating it by numbers infinitely less, composed of men sometimes half-starved, always in rags, without pay, and experiencing, at times, every species of distress which human nature is capable of undergoing. When Washington accepted command of the Continental Army, he was 43. When he returned home from the war, he was 51. Except for the Yorktown campaign, the army directly under Washington's personal command was in the northern states for the eight years of the war. During those eight years, he saw his home, his beloved Mount Vernon, only once. Washington was the army's chief warrior in the ancient sense, marching to battle with his troops through snow and sleet, leading the charge against the Redcoats more than once, and at times planting himself and his horse in a line of fire with his presence holding the troops in place like an anchor. A young officer wrote, I shall never forget what I felt when I saw him brave all the dangers of the field and his important life hanging as it were by a single hair with a thousand deaths flying around him. Believe me, I thought not of myself. Even if he had not put himself in the line of fire during battle, by leading the Revolutionary Army, Washington laid his life on the line. It was high treason for a subject of the king to lead, lead an army against the king's army. Blackstone describes the penalty as follows, that the offender be drawn to the gallows and not be carried or walk, that he be hanged by the neck and then cut down alive, that his entrails be taken out and burned while he is yet alive, that his head be cut off, that his body be divided into four parts, that his head and quarters be at the king's disposal. And death did not complete the punishment. After death, the offender's property was forfeited to the king and could not pass to his heirs. Washington knew. Three days after he accepted the appointment as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, 
he wrote his wife Martha to tell her of the appointment and to encourage her not to worry. I shall rely confidently on that providence, he said, which has heretofore preserved and been bountiful to me, not doubting that I shall return safely to you in the fall. Then he wrote his will. The Declaration of Independence famously concludes, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine, divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Washington was with his army in New York in July of 70, 1776, so he was not among the signatories to the Declaration. But even more than the signatories to the Declaration, he risked his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. If the British had won the war as commander of the rebel army, he would have been the first to have been executed, and his dependents would have been destitute. And we should not overlook the Declaration's phrase, our sacred honor. Washington was intensely concerned with his honor. In the letter that he wrote to Martha after he had accepted the appointment as commander-in-chief, he said, it was utterly out of my power to refuse this appointment without exposing my characters to such censures as would have reflected dishonor on myself and given pain to my friends. Had he refused the appointment, he would have dishonored himself. But by accepting the appointment and taking command of the rebel army, if he failed, he would forfeit not only his life and his fortune, but also his sacred honor. If the British had won, Washington would have gone down in history, not as the father of our country, but as a traitor and we might be celebrating Benedict's, Benedict Arnold's birthday instead of George Washington's. Having mentioned the Declaration of Independence, I should add that when Washington received a copy of it, he ordered it read to his troops. His order announced the Honorable Continental Congress, impelled by the dictates of duty, policy, and necessity, has been pleased to dissolve the connection which subsisted between this country and Great Britain, and to declare the United Colonies of North America free and independent states. And the order urged that this important event serve as a fresh incentive to every officer and soldier to act with fidelity and courage as knowing that now the peace and safety of this country depends under God solely on the success of our arms. The peace treaty ending the war between Great Britain and the United States was signed in Paris on September 3, 1783. A few weeks later, the British evacuated New York and Washington led what remained of his army into the city. Washington met with his office for one last time and with a display of emotion that was unusual for him, bid them farewell. Two days before Christmas, before going home, he appeared before Congress in Annapolis, Maryland, and in a ceremony that was brief but carefully choreographed to symbolize the subordination of military to civilian authority, he resigned his commission as Commander-in-Chief of the United States Army. In 1783, not long before he resigned as Commander-in-Chief, Washington sent one last circular to the states, in part, quote, to offer my sentiments respecting some important subjects, end quote, as he put it before retiring. After expounding on the blessings that heaven had bestowed in the United States, Washington turned to the present crisis, that's his words, with respect to which silence in me would be a crime. Essential to the existence and well-being of the United States, he said, was an indissoluble union of the states under one federal head. 
This is the favorable moment, he said, to give such a tone to our federal government as will enable it to answer the ends of its institution. Or this may be the ill-fated moment for relaxing the powers of the Union, annihilating the cement of the Confederation, and exposing us to become the sport of European politics, which play one state against another to prevent their growing importance. For according to the system of policy the state shall adopt at this moment, they will stand or fall. And by their confirmation or lapse, it is yet to be decided whether the revolution must ultimately be considered a blessing or a curse. As you know, the Confederation was not so much a national government as an alliance of independent sovereigns. The Articles of Confederation, the full name is the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union of the States, and the 13 states are listed in the name of the document. In that document, the states are listed, and it says that each state retains its sovereignty and describes the Confederation as a league of friendship. Each state had one vote in Congress. Amendments to the Articles required unanimous consent of all 13 states. Other important matters required nine votes to pass. The costs of war and the other expenses were to be paid from a common treasury of funds of which the funds were to be supplied by the states. Congress had no power to levy taxes. Congress could send requisitions or requests to the states for their shares of needed funds but had no power to force the states to pay. And often they did not pay. There was no executive branch. Congress set up departments of government to conduct operations, but those departments operated under the auspices of congressional boards or committees, which could not and did not manage them as effectively as a true executive branch of government could do. And these departments were often inefficient and sometimes corrupt that funds often were lacking to pay the soldiers and to purchase food, clothing, arms, and other necessities of the army was due in large part to the fact that the Confederation was set up as it was, as an alliance or association of states rather than a national government. While encamped at Newburgh, Washington wrote Alexander Hamilton saying, no man perhaps has felt, as bad, felt the bad effects of the defects in the Confederation more sensibly than I have. For to the defects thereof and one of powers in Congress may justly be described the prolongation of the war, may justly be ascribed the prolongation of the war and consequently the expenses occasioned by it. More than half of the perplexities I have experienced in the course of my command and almost the whole of the difficulties and distress of the army have their origin, origin here. Washington made the same point in the 1783 circular to the states, asserting that the war could have been won in less time and with much less expense, but for the lack of authority in the national government. The Confederation in Washington's mind was hopelessly flawed. It is indispensable to the happiness of the individual states, he explained, that to be lodged somewhere a supreme power to regulate and govern the general concerns of the Confederated Republic, without which the Union cannot be of long duration. Accordingly, whatever measures have a tendency to dissolve the Union or lessen the sovereign authority ought to be considered as hostile to the liberty and independency of America. 
Washington predicted that the defects of the Confederation would continue to imperil the country after the war, and his predictions came true. And we'll not recite a litany of the defects in the Confederation here. They're in the Federalist Papers in Numbers 15 to 21. The defects in the Confederation and the need for a genuine national government continued to be a cause of concern for Washington and a subject for his letters after the war. In 1785, he described the Confederation as little more than a shadow without the substance, and Congress as a nugatory body, where either a united people are under one head, he said, or where 13 independent sovereignties eternally counteracting each other. And here is a fundamental conviction forged in Washington's soul by the suffering of his soldiers caused by the failures of the Confederation. The United States needed to form an indissoluble union under a national government. And the national government needed to have power adequate to the needs of the nation, which meant at a minimum that it needed to have an executive branch to conduct the operations of government, and it needed sufficient money, including credit when required, to conduct those operations. While he was commander-in-chief, Washington wrote, in modern wars, the longest purse must determine the event. He feared that Great Britain had the longest purse. Though the government of Great Britain was, quote, deeply in debt and, of course, poor, close quote, he said, the nation is rich and their riches afford a fund which will not easily be exhausted. Besides, their system of public credit is such that it is capable of greater exertions than in that of any other nation. In his 1783 circular to the states, Washington asserted, it is only in our united character as an empire that our credit is established, is supported among foreign nations. Washington also wrote, while he was commander-in-chief, that good government required not only greater powers in Congress, but also more responsibility and permanency in the executive bodies. Boards composed of members of Congress, he explained, were not competent to the great business of war, which requires not only close application, but a constant and uniform train of thinking. Moreover, Washington exclaimed, if the states are free to reject decisions of Congress, which they were because Congress had no means of enforcing its decisions, it will be madness in us to think of prosecuting the war. Requisitions, he said in a letter after the war, are a perfect nullity where 13 sovereign, independent, disunited states are in the habit of refusing compliance with them at their option. Requisitions are actually little better than a jest and a byword throughout the land. To establish an indissoluble union with the national government and executive branch would require a new constitution. To put a the union on a sound fiscal basis with adequate credit would require the national government to adopt, adopt economic policies directed to that end. We will see later that Washington was indispensable to the establishment of a national government with an executive branch and to the adoption of economic policies designed to put the national government on a sound fiscal basis. But a nation is more than a government and more than a set of economic policies. A nation requires a people. When the peace treaty with Great Britain was finally signed and the army about to be disbanded, Washington wrote farewell orders to the armies of the United States congratulating the armies on their accomplishments and expressing his own amazement at the astonishing events, those are his words, of which the soldiers have been a part. 
events which seldom, if ever, before taken on the stage, before events which have seldom, if ever, before taken place on the stage of human action, nor can they probably ever happen again. Among the foremost of these astonishing events was this. Who that was not a witness could imagine that the most violent local prejudices would cease so soon, and that men who came from different parts of the continent, strongly disposed by the habits of education to despise and quarrel with each other, would instantly become but one patriotic band of brothers. Earlier, Washington had written that nothing was more important to the future of the United States than the removal of those local prejudices which intrude upon and embarrass that great line of policy, which alone can make us a free, happy, and powerful people. An element essential to the existence and well-being of the United States, Washington said in his 1783 circular to the states was, the prevalence of that pacific and friendly disposition among the people of the United States, which will induce them to forget their local prejudices and policies. During his presidency, Washington proposed that Congress establish a national university. Among the motives to such an institution, he explained, was the assimilation of principles, opinions, and manners of our countrymen by the common education of a portion of our youth from every, every quarter. He later made a financial pledge toward the establishment of a university in the District of Columbia, in part because assembling the youth from different parts of this rising republic might contribute to the removal of prejudices, which might arise from local circumstances. And here is a further aspect of Washington's fundamental convictions as to the need of the nation. Local and state prejudices must be overcome. Not only was it necessary for the United States to have a truly national government, they must also be united as a people. Washington's proposal to educate youth from different parts of the nation at one university as a means of removing local prejudices reminds us of the praise for his soldiers for over overcoming their prejudices to become a band of brothers. We should also remember that numerous members of this band of brothers were black. The first Rhode Island Regiment, which included the slaves that received their freedom in return for enlisting in the Revolutionary Army, led the decisive charge at Yorktown after having been, having been selected by Washington for, for that critical task. The bravery exhibited by the attacking troops was emulous and worthy, Washington recorded in his journal. Few cases have exhibited stronger proofs of intrepidity I think that's intrepidness, coolness, and firmness than were shown on this occasion. Before the war, Washington expressed no qualms about the institution of slavery or his participation in it as a slave owner. After the war, in private letters, he began to express a desire for state legislatures, for the state legislature to adopt a plan for the abolition of slavery. In 1786, he wrote, there is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of slavery. Later that same year, Washington wrote that it was among my first wishes to see some plan adopted by the legislature by which slavery in this country may be abolished. In 1797, two years before his death, Washington wrote, I wish from my soul that the legislature of this state would see the policy of a gradual abolition of slavery and he began to explore ways that he might, in which he might emancipate his own slaves. 
but he took no action, not until his death. So far as I have found, Washington never explained in writing or in a public statement why he hoped for the abolition of slavery. The closest he came is in a private conversation in 1798, a year before his death. According to John Bernard, an English visitor to Mount Vernon, Washington said, not only do I pray for it, referring to abolition, on the score of human dignity, but I can clearly foresee that nothing but the rooting out of slavery can perpetuate the existence of our union by consolidating it on a common bond of principle. Sixty years later, Lincoln would make a similar point using a scriptural reference, a house divided against itself cannot stand. The difference between Washington's statement and Lincoln's house divided speech is this. Washington said privately that nothing but rooting out slavery could perpetuate the Union by giving it a common bond of principle. Nothing but rooting out of slavery could perpetuate the Union by giving it a common bond of principle. He did not envision that the nation could unite on a pro-slavery basis, nor did he speak publicly. In contrast, when Lincoln said that the nation must become either all free or all slave, he was speaking publicly to warn that the entire nation could become slave territory, and he viewed the Dred Scott decision as, step, as a step toward making that happen. Now, we've spoken of Washington's convictions forged by his war experience. Those convictions defined his hopes for America. Washington hoped that the United States would become an indissoluble union with the national government. He hoped that the national government would have a strong executive and fiscal policies that would provide the government with adequate resources, including credit, to conduct its operations, including war. He hoped that the United States would repose their first loyalty, their primary allegiance in the nation, rather than in their respective states. He wanted them to think of themselves as Americans rather than as Virginians or New Yorkers. And he hoped that slavery would be abolished. Some of Washington's hopes, a national government with a strong executive and sound fiscal policies were realized in, in his lifetime. His other hopes were not realized or not fully realized during his lifetime. I want to speak a bit about Washington's role in realizing the hopes that were realized in his lifetime. And after that, we'll turn to those that were not. As you know, in 1787, the state sent delegates to a convention in Philadelphia ostensibly to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Over his objection, Washington was selected as a delegate from Virginia. He wrote several letters saying that he would not go. He was the most trusted man of, in America, however, and Madison and others urged him to go arguing that his participation was essential to lend credibility to the convention. Washington understood that the ultimate success of the revolution for which he had fought and for which he had suffered depended on the success of the convention. He ultimately agreed to attend, and he was elected unanimously president of the convention. Instead of proposing amendments to the Articles of Confederation, the convention drafted and proposed an entirely new constitution. As Washington hoped, the convention proposed a constitution for a national government, not just a league of friendship or a confederation of states. The national government would have power to enforce its laws. 
Over the objections of several delegates who were fearful of monarchy, the proposed constitution provided for a unitary executive, a single person rather than two or more. Elected for a term of four years with no limit on reelection, in whom would be vested the executive power, the extent of which was undefined and therefore open-ended. According to Pierce Butler, a delegate from, to the convention from South Carolina, the powers, of the, conviction, convi ex the powers of the executive would not have been so great had not so many of the members cast their eyes toward General Washington as president and shaped their ideas of the powers to be given to a president by their opinions of his virtue. Ten states ratified the Constitution before conventions were held in Virginia and New York, the two largest states without whom the Union would not succeed. The issue was close in both states. At the Virginia Convention, the venerable Patrick Henry voiced the concerns of many when he criticized this alarming transition from a confederacy to a consolidated government, as a result of which our rights and privileges are endangered and the sovereignty of the states will be relinquished. The proposed constitution, Henry claimed, squints toward monarchy. Your president may easily become a king. Despite the opposition of Henry, George Mason, and others of prominence, Virginia ratified the Constitution by a vote of 89 to 79. The opposition in New York also included several prominent figures, the governor, George Clinton, Robert Yates, who was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, and others. More anti-federalists than federalists were elected to the New York Convention. Yet the ratification by Virginia swayed enough delegates to create a bare majority 30 to 27, in favor of ratification. Washington did, did not publicly participate in the ratification debate, but he was active behind the scenes, and it was public knowledge that he supported the Constitution. And if he had opposed it, it could not have been ratified. Two weeks after the Virginia Convention voted in favor of ratification, James Monroe, a Virginian who opposed ratification and who later would become the fifth president of the United States, wrote Thomas Jefferson in Paris. Speaking of Washington, Monroe said, be assured his influence carried this government. What we've come to is this. Washington's support was essential to the adoption of a constitution creating a truly national government with an executive whose power would be open-ended. And the expectation that he would be the first president was essential to the decision to vest the, ex the executive with the power that the Constitution gave to in that office. The expectation that Washington would be the first president, as you know, was realized. He was elected president by unanimous vote of the Electoral College and re-elected again by unanimous vote to a, for a second term. Washington was the one man who was trusted both by those who supported the new Constitution, the Federalists, and those who opposed it, the Anti-Federalists. According to historian Gordon Wood, Washington was the only American in 1789 who possessed the dignity, patience, restraint, and reputation for Republican virtue that the untried but potentially powerful office of the that the presidency needed at the outset. According to Wood, it was the people's trust in Washington that enabled the new government to survive. As president, Washington took action to put the nation the national government on a sound physical basis, fiscal basis with credit when needed. 
As a part of that fiscal basis, Washington explained in his first annual message to Congress, a free people should promote manufacturing to render, to render them independent of others for essential goods, particularly military supplies. The mastermind for Washington's economic policies was his Secretary of State, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton proposed a system of excise taxes to be collected by his department, funding the federal debt at par but with a reduced interest rate, assuming all the state debts assumed for the incurred for the Revolutionary War, and creating a national bank that would, as summarized by Chernow, lend money to the government, issue notes that would serve as the national currency, and act as a repository for tax payments. Washington projected the eventual development of manufacturing in the United States, and not just to meet military requirements, but also to create a more diversified and prosperous economy that would be more self-reliant and less dependent upon European supplies. Washington's plans, according to one historian, made economic sense as the improved credit of the rating of the United States in foreign banks and the surging productivity of the commercial sector demonstrated after Washington's financial plan was adopted. Although, Washington, although Hamilton devised these plans, they were fully consistent with Washington's views. Not all of what Hamilton's proposals were adopted, but many of them were, and they could not have been adopted without Washington's support. Nonetheless, they drew intense opposition by Jefferson, who was Washington's Secretary of State, and Madison, who served in Congress and upon whom Washington relied for advice. In a letter to Washington, Jefferson critiqued the details of Hamilton's fiscal policy before addressing the alleged motive behind these policies. The ultimate object of all this, he said, is to prepare the way for a change from the present Republican form of government to that of a monarchy, of which the English Constitution is to be the model. That this was contemplated by the convention is no secret. Washington deemed the supporters of Hamilton's policies monarchical Federalists. He characterized those who joined him in opposing Hamilton's policies as Republican Federalists. Furthermore, he claimed, Hamilton's policies promoted the interests of the northern states to the detriment of the south. Whenever northern and southern prejudices have come into conflict, he said, the latter have been sacrificed and the former soothed. Washington had decided before receiving this letter to announce that he would not accept re-election as a second term as president. Jefferson warned him, the confidence of the whole union is centered in you. North and South will hang together if they have you to hang on. That it was essential to the Union for Washington to accept re-election to a second term was nearly the only point of agreement between Jefferson and Hamilton. In dispute was not only Hamilton's economic policies but also foreign policy. Hamilton viewed Great Britain, not France, as the more important trading power. So did Washington. There are other things in which and I'm not going to go into it all, but the, the Washington and Hamilton were perceived as taking Great Britain's side against France in a number of respects. The Jeffersonians thought that true friends of liberty should favor France. From the beginning of the French Revolution, Washington feared where it was headed. When the reign of terror ensued, his fears were realized. Washington, I mean, Jefferson remained sanguine. He regarded the bloodshed as the cost of advancing the rights of man. This difference again cast Washington and Hamilton in the view of the Jeffersonians 
and the role of monarchists. During Washington's first term, the opponents of Hamilton's fiscal policies vilified Hamilton, but not Washington. His immense prestige made him off limits to criticism. Not so during his second term. He was accused of being either senile or a willing co-conspirator with Hamilton and a plot to establish monarchy. What made the rising tide of criticism more troublesome for Washington, says one of his biographers, was that much of it originated from Virginia, where he was increasingly regarded as an apostate. This history sets the backdrop for Washington's most famous writing, his farewell address, which he published in newspapers late in his second term to announce his decision not to stand for a third term. The farewell address was kind of a last will and testament, last will and testament from the father of the country to his child. In addition to announcing his decision not to accept re-election, he wrote to advise the nation on matters quote, which appear to me all important to the permanency of your felicity as a people. He reiterated the hope of his war and post-war writings that your union and brotherly affection be perpetual. To his fellow Americans, he wrote that the unity of government which constitutes you one people is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty of which you so highly prize. To the efficacy and permanency of your union, he explained, a government of the whole is indispensable. No alliances, however strict between the parts, can be an adequate substitute. The name American, and he capitalized American, all capitals, Washington admonished, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt a just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. Washington warned of the danger of parties with particular reference to founding them on geographical discriminations. Beware, he said, of geographical discriminations, northern and southern, Atlantic and western, which may disturb our union. Washington died on December 14, 1799. A few months earlier, he had written a new will, having been warned in a dream, according to one story, that he was about to die. In the name of God, amen, his will begins. After bequeathing his whole estate to Martha, he directed it upon her death, all slaves who he owned in his own right must receive their freedom. He directed that the elderly and infirm be supported for the rest of their lives, and that youth with no parents be cared for them to care for them be educated and cared for until the age of 25. Many of the founders owned slaves. Washington is the only one who freed his. In researching for this lecture, I came across a most intriguing document. It's entitled Thomas Jefferson's Notes of a Conversation with Edmund Randolph after 1795. These notes say, the P, President, speaking with R, Randolph, on the hypothesis of a separation of the Union into Northern and Southern, said he had made up his mind to remove and be of the Northern. 
When Washington passed from the scene, the nation was a house divided. Certainly it was a house divided, as Lincoln would say 60 years later, and it was partly slave and partly free. That division necessarily created a second division between, Northern and South, between the North and the South. The nation was also divided and it was partly federal and partly national. Madison used that phrase in Federalist 39 to refer to the modes of establishing and operating the new government. In some respects, the new government would be a confederation like the one that had existed during the Revolutionary War, but in other respects, it would be a truly national government. And that arrangement left two questions to be resolved by future generations, which would dominate or predominate the nations or the state, the nation or the states, and to which the state or the nation would citizens give their primary allegiance, which would be first in their hearts. Doubtless you've heard the tribute to Washington that he was first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. That line was part of the eulogy delivered by Henry Lee III during the Congressional Memorial Service after Washington's death. During the Revolutionary War, Henry Lee was a cavalry officer and achieved famous light horse Harry Lee. His son, Robert E. Lee, achieved greater fame during the Civil War as the commander of the Confederate Army. At issue in the Civil War was whether the United States was an indissoluble union, as Washington had hoped, or whether it could be dissolved by states that wished to secede. Behind that issue was the question of whether the United States was primarily a confederation of states or primarily a nation. Behind that issue was the question of, whether, of where a citizen's primary allegiance would rest. Was a citizen first a Virginian and then an American? Or was he first an American, as Washington had hoped, and then a Virginian? Behind all those issues was the big one, the elephant in the room, whether slavery was compatible with the principles of the American Republic. Robert E. Lee, Robert e. Lee surrendered at a little town in Virginia called Appomattox Courthouse. The day after he had relinquished his sword at Appomattox, Lee wrote his last general order formally announcing his surrender to his troops and explaining that the army, in Lee's words, has been compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources. The overwhelming numbers and resources that compelled the Confederate Army to yield reflected the different economies of the North and the South. When the Civil War began, the South's economy was still overwhelmingly agriculture and based largely on cotton, whereas the North had far greater commercial and manufacturing capacities. Ninety percent of the nation's manufacturing output came from the northern states. The North produced 17 times more textiles than the South, 30 times more leather goods, and 20 times more pig iron. The North produced 3,200 firearms to every 100 produced in the South. Nearly 90% of the European immigrants had migrated to the northern states where the economy was based on free labor. By 1860, the states that stayed in the Union had a population of 23 million compared to 9 million of the Confederate states, which meant that the Union had approximately 3.5 million males of military age, 18 to 45, compared to one million for the Confederacy. 
Governments on both sides were forced to resort to borrowing on an unprecedented scale to meet the financial obligations for the war. With more developed markets and an industrial base that could ultimately produce the goods needed for the war, the Union was clearly in a better position to meet the challenge. In modern wars, Washington had said in 1780, the longest purse must determine the outcome. To obtain a long purse, Washington advised a free people should develop manufacturing capabilities, at least enough to be independent, especially in goods necessary for war. Hamilton crafted the economic policies, which Washington supported, to achieve those goals. When the Civil War came, it was the North that had an economy most closely resembling the Hamiltonian vision, which was also Washington's vision. So it was the North that had the longest purse. And consequently, it was Lee's army, not the Northern army, that was barefoot, hungry, and short on munitions. We should note, too, that the North had a great president. That great president used the open-ended executive powers granted in the Constitution to the maximum to orchestrate the defeat of the Confederacy. Lee's surrender sounded the death knell for the Confederacy. The death of the Confederacy meant the death for the idea that the Union could be dissolved by states that wished to secede. Lee's surrender meant that the United States would be an indissoluble Union as Washington had hoped. The victory of the Union decided the question of whether the national government or the states would predominate. The history of this nation subsequent to Appomattox has been in one of increasing centralization of power in the national government in Washington. The first loyalty of those who fought in the Confederate Army had been to their states or to the South. The victory of the Union over the Confederacy put that, mind, put that mindset on the road to extinction. Today we think of ourselves primarily as Americans, not as Californians or Arkansans. Lee himself set an example for the shift in the primary allegiance after the war. He sternly rebuked a Virginia woman who was speaking bitterly of the North, telling her that she should bury her old animosities and train her sons to be loyal Americans. I fought against the people of the North because I believe they were seeking to wrest from the South dearest rights, he said. But I've never cherished toward them bitter or vindictive feelings, and I've ever seen the day that I did not pray for them. After his surrender at Appomattox, Lee wrote that it had become the duty of every citizen, the contest being virtually ended, to cease opposition and to place himself in a position to serve the country. The country of which Lee spoke was the United States of America. Lee's surrender at Appomattox also marked the death knell for slavery. Emancipation would be the new birth of freedom of which Lincoln spoke at Gettysburg. Vestiges of slavery would remain, but Lee's slavery put slavery and its vestiges on the course to ultimate extinction. Lee's surrender did. Again, according to one story, Lee set the example. As the story goes, one Sunday, a few months after the surrender at Appomattox at the Episcopal Church where Lincoln attended, a black man went forward to receive communion. While others remained in their seats, Lincoln went forward, knelt at the communion rail, and received communion with him. We mentioned earlier that some of Washington's hopes for our nation were realized during his lifetime. Others were not. 
Our summary of the effects of the Civil War comes to this. Lee's surrender at Appomattox meant that Washington's unrealized hopes for our nation would be realized. As Lincoln left home for the last time just before boarding a train to travel to Washington to take office as president, he paused to bid farewell to the neighbors who had assembled to see him off. He said that he left with a task before me greater than that which rested upon Washington. Without the assistance of that divine being who ever attended him, I cannot succeed. With that assistance, I cannot fail. Lee's reference to Washington's reliance on the divine being shows that he was familiar with Washington's writings, which abound with references to divine providence. It's the only point in theology about which Washington was not reticent. It may be that Washington's convictions about God's providential care, like his convictions about the national government, were forged by his experiences in war. As a young man, 22 years of age, and one battle during the French and Indian War, four bullets were shot through his coat and two horses were shot under him. He escaped unharmed, which he attributed to, quote, the miraculous care of providence that protected me beyond all human expectation. On occasions too numerous to mention during the Revolutionary War and during the creation and ratification of the Constitution, Washington credited divine providence for success. He concluded his final annual message to Congress in 1796 with, quote, my fervent supplications to the supreme ruler of the universe and sovereign arbiter of nations that his providential care may still be extended to the United States. Bearing in mind that Washington told Congress that he prayed that God's providential care would be extended to the United States, and remembering that, that Lincoln sought that same divine assistance, let's revisit the key points in the chain of events that we've traversed. The soldiers under Washington's command during the Revolutionary War often were barefoot, hungry, and short on munitions, largely because the 13 colonies, which became the original 13 states, formed a confederation, not a true national government. Their hardships and their suffering forged or helped forge a strong and abiding conviction in Washington's soul that the United States must become an indissoluble union with a national government headed by a strong executive operating a fiscal policy that would generate the necessary resources for the operation of government, including war. Because of that conviction, or those convictions, Washington lent his support, his indispensable support, to the new Constitution and to the economic vision of Alexander Hamilton. The national government, and in some measure Hamilton's economic uh, vision, both of which came into existence with Washington's indispensable support, brought about the defeat of the Confederacy and the abolition of slavery. Now, I've reflected on George Washington, the sufferings of his soldiers, the convictions that he formed, and their effect on the formation of the American nation in light of Washington and Lincoln's prayers for God's providential care for the United States, and in light of the Catholic teaching that suffering in God's plans may have redemptive value. My reflections have led me to these thoughts, and I'm not calling them conclusions. These are thoughts. 
which I present to you for your consideration. Perhaps in his divine plan, God willed from the beginning to use the hardships encountered and the suffering endured by the American soldiers at Valley Forge, those bloody tracks in the snow left by both blacks and whites as a link in the causal chain that would ring the death knell for slavery at Appomattox. And perhaps as part of that same divine plan, God willed from the beginning that the slaves from Rhode Island who enlisted in the Revolutionary Army during the Valley Forge winter, who fought for freedom based on the principles of the Declaration of Independence, and who in turn were granted freedom, would be the first fruits of a new birth of freedom accomplished at Appomattox. I'm gonna close with just some personal comments. Uh, you'll recall that at the beginning of this lecture that we began by explaining that it was a Republican Senator from Arkansas, Stephen, Wallace Dorsey, who sponsored the legislation that first established Washington's birthday as a federal holiday. Dorsey was elected in 1782. Arkansas did not elect another Republican senator for 124 years until 1996, when Arkansas elected Tim Hutchinson to the United States Senate. Tim Hutchinson is the senator who submitted my name to President George W. Bush. I had written the main part of this lecture before I learned of this indirect connection, almost a connection, to Washington's birthday. I showed an early draft of this lecture to my son Jeremy, whom some of you know, and I asked whether he thought I should retain the discussion of the Civil War as the conclusion of this lecture, which after all was about George Washington. He said that I should. He commented, the truth is, that you care deeply about this story because of your personal connection with the Lee and Lincoln conclusion. And I'd not thought about the lecture in those terms until Jeremy made that comment. I grew up in the South in the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education. I was three years old when Brown was decided. Six years old when President Eisenhower sent federal troops to Little Rock to enforce a federal court order, an order from the court on which I subsequently served, that nine children be admitted to Central High School. 12 years old when Martin Luther King led the march on Washington and delivered his I Have a Dream speech. And 17 years old when King was assassinated approximately 90 miles from my home. As Valley Forge unfolded into Appomattox, so Appomattox unfolded into my life as a child. Now Lincoln has been important in th shaping my thinking on issues related to slavery. And in st my studying for this lecture, I learned that on the issues that divided the nation during the Civil War, Washington, a Southern slave owner, agreed with and prepared the way for Lincoln. Washington made Lincoln possible. Lincoln completed what Washington had started. In the story of the formation of the American nation, Washington and Lincoln, our two greatest presidents, one from the South and one from the North, are hand in hand. They complement one another. It's as though Washington carried the torch as far as he could, 
and then laid it down. And 60 years later, Lincoln picked it up and completed the race. This year, the federal holiday that commemorates Washington's birthday fell on February 17, five days after Lincoln's birthday and five days before Washington's. I believe that Washington would be pleased to share the day with Lincoln. And I believe that Lincoln would be pleased for the day to bear Washington's name. Thank you very much.